I'm not sure if you've noticed, but Satan has been receiving a lot of attention in the news lately. And no, I'm not talking about misreading Santa's name. Um, Although, yeah, they they are spelled the same, well, same letters. It seems uh, like every few weeks for the past month or so, I've seen a story about something related to Satan worship. Have you seen this? In Wisconsin, for example, there was a Christmas tree festival that faced some backlash after the local satanic temple had a tree featured in the festival dedicated to Satan that said, Hail Santa, but again, playing on the word Satan. A few weeks ago, an elementary school in Tennessee allowed an after-school Satan club to be set up, a program to be set up by this satanic group. And probably the most famous story of all, I'm sure you heard about this one, was that a a satanic idol was set up on display in the Iowa Capitol building, complete with a goat-headed figure and candles. A man from Mississippi is facing criminal charges after he allegedly tore down the display, decapitated the idol, and threw its head in the trash can. Okay, bizarre stuff. Satan's all over the news. What are we to make of these stories? Is this a sign that Satan is gaining new ground in our country? While I certainly don't want to see after-school Satan clubs set up in our elementary schools or goat-headed idols set up in our state capitals, I would say that these examples are only the tip of the iceberg. In fact, these kind of overt and blatant instances of Satan worship are probably the least of our concerns at this point. The more insidious and subtle indicators of Satan's influence are found elsewhere. For example, a recent Gallup poll finds that 20% of Americans attend church every week, while 40% attend church once a month. How many of the people protesting these displays of satanic worship are committed to regular worship of the triune God. Jesus said no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you are not devoted to Christ, then Satan has you right where he wants you, even if that doesn't manifest itself in obvious displays of satanic worship. Well, what's with all this Satan talk? I mean, is the devil even real? Can we moderns believe in a figure like Satan? Isn't he just a a made-up figure that we use to excuse evil in our lives? The devil made me do it. C.S. Lewis tells us there are two pitfalls with regard to how we think about Satan and demons. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other one is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think Lewis's advice is wise. We shouldn't become over-infatuated with the satanic and the demonic, seeing the devil around every corner. But neither should we exclude the devil from our thinking altogether. If we think that the devil's influence 
is limited to things like that goat-headed display in the Iowa Capitol building, then we are underestimating our enemy. It's passages like this one here in 1 Peter 5 and our other scripture lessons we heard read this morning that should remind us that we have a very real enemy who poses a much more serious threat than that. Who exactly is our enemy? The Apostle Peter, we've been working through uh, sermons this year in, in 1 Peter. He's been writing to uh, Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and they've been grieved by various trials. In addition to instructing them about their true identity as God's redeemed people, he wants these Christians to be sober-minded, to be prepared in the face of their enemies, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Peter actually deals with each one of these enemies throughout the letter. You'll remember back in chapter 1, he told them to be sober-minded. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Okay, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. In other words, you have an enemy within that is waging war against your very soul, your sinful flesh. You are to be sober-minded about this enemy, to put away the deeds of the flesh and abstain from the passions of the flesh, not losing sight of our future hope. In chapters 3 and 4, he speaks to them about another enemy, the world, a hostile world. He explores various scenarios that they are to navigate with respect to this hostile world, a world that hates Christ and his followers, a world that slanders and ridicules and persecutes you when you do not join in with them in their debauchery. In this context, he tells them again in chapter 4, therefore be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sober-minded about your enemy, the world. And now here at the end of the letter, he identifies yet a third enemy, the devil himself. He warns a third time, be sober-minded, be watchful, be on guard against this very real enemy. As we consider this text this morning, I want you to see three things. Our adversary, the devil, our strategy against him, and the hope that assures us. Our adversary, our strategy, and our hope. Let's look at our adversary. We see here in verse 8, his identity and his threat. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter calls the devil our adversary. This is a, a legal term, like a legal opponent. The devil is our opponent in God's courtroom. He's the prosecutor. He brings charges against the saints. He tempts the saints to sin, and then he brings accusations against them when they do. He lures you into committing a sin against the Lord, and then he says, look at what a sinner you are. How could you do that? 
The name for the devil is Diabolos, which means accuser or slanderer. He brings accusations against God's people. We saw this in the book of Job. The devil says, Job only worships you because you have blessed him. Strike out your hand and he will curse you. Or think of the book of Zechariah. Satan comes out to accuse Joshua, the high priest, because he has filthy garments. Look at how filthy his garments are. He points out our faults and demands the Lord to judge us for them. Like a kid who gets in trouble but then demands justice. He was doing it too. Revelation 12 says he accuses the brothers night and day before our God. Satan not only accuses us, but he slanders and blasphemes. Behind those who are slandering the saints here in Peter's audience is the slanderer, the devil himself, spreading lies and twisting the truth about the saints to stir up hostility against them. The devil is a liar. Jesus said in John 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's been deceiving from the beginning. He deceived the woman in the garden for which he was cursed. In Revelation 12, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. He desires mankind to be deceived and he desires mankind's apostasy, that mankind would fall away from the one true God. Satan is an apostate himself. He is the first apostate. He turned his back on the Lord in the beginning and was removed from his position. And his primary objective and desire for others is to become apostates along with him. He has been thrown down out of heaven and he knows that judgment is coming. In his wrath, he is seeking to take others along with him. And make no mistake, Satan is not a fool. He knows what he is doing. The ancient serpent has been at work since the beginning of mankind's history. Cyprian, a church father, said that Satan is the adversary from of old and the ancient enemy with whom we wage war. 6,000 years are nearly done, during which the devil opposes man. Now in this long age, he has learned quite well all kinds of tempting and the arts and plots of casting down. Okay, Satan has been at this a while. He knows a thing or two about deceiving men. Peter wants us to be sober-minded about this adversary. That is his identity. Let's consider his threat. Peter says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Earlier in the chapter, Peter had been referring to the church as the flock of God, as a flock of sheep. The elders are to shepherd the flock under Jesus, the chief shepherd. Now he continues this metaphor by including the enemy of the flock, a prowling and roaring lion who is ready to devour the sheep. The lion roars to invoke fear in the sheep, to intimidate the sheep. Remember, these Christians that Peter is writing to are undergoing persecution from their neighbors. They're undergoing slanders, uh, in some cases physical persecution. The fiery trial that they are undergoing is an occasion for Satan to intimidate the saints. He wants them to be afraid. 
to be fearful of rejection, of hardship, and of suffering. He seeks sheep to devour. What does it mean for the devil to devour someone? In this context, Christians, again, are being persecuted. And the temptation here is to compromise or to give up out of fear or hardship. As I said, Satan desires apostasy. He wants these Christians to turn back in the face of their persecution. He wants them to turn their back on Christ. Satan offers relief from ridicule, from hardship, and from suffering. He promises a better life, a life filled with ease and comfort and pleasure. That is the bait. That is the shiny lure that he uses to entice these suffering Christians. But it's another one of his lies. Cyprian again says, He lies so that he may deceive. He flatters so that he may harm. He promises good things so that he may bestow evil. He promises life so that he may kill. That is our adversary, his identity and the threat that he poses. What does Peter tell us to do? What are we to do in the face of this adversary? What is our defense against this opponent? Let's look at our strategy. It includes being watchful, resisting, and standing firm. First, being watchful. Verse 8 again. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. We need to be watchful to be alert to the real threat of our adversary. I mentioned that Peter uses this command to be sober-minded in three different places, and each time in the context of a different enemy that we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just as we need to be aware and on guard against our own sinful flesh and to be alert against the world that is hostile to Christ, so we need to be awake and alert to the threat of the devil. He hates you. The devil hates you and wants to see you fall away from Christ. Peter says, stay awake and stay sober. As I've pointed out throughout my sermons on this letter, uh, many times Peter's teaching is very obviously connected to events in his own life that is recorded for us in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And this command is no exception. In our Gospel lesson, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to have him. Satan has to ask permission to tempt God's uh, people, just as he had to ask permission to tempt Job. But he demands to have Peter. He wants to sift him like wheat. He wants to shake him up so that he loses his faith in the Lord. Jesus knows that Peter is going to fall. He tells him this. But he assures Peter that he has prayed for him. He tells Peter that. I've prayed for you that your faith would not ultimately fail. Jesus is confident that Peter will be restored. And he tells him, and when you have turned again, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, that's what Peter's doing. He's turned again and he's strengthening his brothers. Strengthen your brothers with what you have learned through this trial. Peter needed to be humbled. I'll never do that, Lord. He fails. The Lord prayed. And now he is strengthening his brothers. When Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane that very night, Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. 
They kept falling asleep every time Jesus went off to pray and Jesus returned and he said, why are you sleeping? Why do you keep falling asleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Peter and the apostles learned from this mistake and they passed these same commands on to the church. We see this throughout the New Testament. Don't fall asleep. Watch and pray. Don't fall asleep. The devil never sleeps. He is prowling around, seeking someone to devour. Watch and pray. Practice spiritual discernment and alertness so that you may not fall into temptation. Paul says in Ephesians 6, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Watch and pray. Persevere in the the faith by staying sober-minded and alert about this enemy. This doesn't mean that we need to see the devil, again, hiding around every corner. But we also must not allow ourselves to be lulled asleep by the enemy. Satan wants nothing more than for you to forget that he exists. We need to remain vigilant against the schemes of the devil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. And he takes measures uh, to not be outwitted by Satan. Pray as Jesus taught us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Don't be naive about spiritual battles. Look for the hook when you see the lure. Okay, look for the hook when you see Satan's lures. He offers you the good life, but his offer is empty. His ways lead to death. Be watchful. Secondly, we need to resist him. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, Peter calls us to resist or to stand against Satan, oppose your adversary, renounce the devil and all his works. We just heard the baptismal vows again this morning. Do you renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomp and false glory of the world with all its covetous desires and the sinful inclinations of the flesh so that you will not follow or be led by them? This is the vow that we begin the Christian life with. The God of all grace calls us to continue in that vow by daily renouncing the devil. If we are to maintain our allegiance to Christ, we must oppose the devil and all his ways. Peter shows us what this means positively. Okay, negatively resist, oppose. Positively, he says, we oppose him by standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Did you notice what comes after the renouncing of Satan in the baptismal vows this morning? After we ask the candidate or sponsor to renounce the devil, we ask them to affirm the creed, to stand in the faith. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? We resist Satan by trusting and believing in the triune God, by standing firm in the faith. Have confidence in God's word and promises. This is what it means to stand firm in the faith, having confidence in God's promises, clinging to them, clinging to God's promises every day, praying for them in your life. Lead us not into temptation. Paul uses the same word for resist here uh, in Ephesians 6. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's the same word, resist, that you can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul holds those two things together. They're in agreement here. Stand firm to resist the devil. Paul calls us to take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The way that you resist the devil and all his works is standing firm in the faith, trusting in the Lord and his word and clinging to his promises. This makes sense when you think about the serpent tempting Eve. Did God really say? Is God really good? That's where it starts. When your trust in the Lord starts to erode, your faith starts to weaken. Peter also points out that part of resisting the devil is having knowledge of our brotherhood suffering throughout the world. In other words, encouragement from the church. Pastor Rich likes to point out, and he has in a few sermons, the truthfulness of that infamous sign found on I-65 south of here. Go to church or the devil will get you. You've seen the sign. Go to church or the devil will get you. How many people do you know that have left the faith did so after regularly attending church every week? Do people who apostatize just attend church every week and then one day decide, I'm going to leave the faith? No, it never happens that way. It doesn't work like that. For any number of reasons, people drift from the faith gradually and usually the first thing to go is being disconnected from the body of Christ. They stop going to church. Think about uh, kids who lose their faith when they go to college. What's the first thing to happen? They stop going to church, okay? They get too busy, got sports, got, you know, too much uh, concern with studies and so forth. They stop going to church. Go to church or the devil will get you. We are in a corporate battle, not merely an individual one. The devil wants to get you alone. He wants you to think you are alone. The roaring lion wants to single out the sheep who's all by itself. When you are separated from the flock, you are weak. We need the church, not least because it is the body of Christ, but also because we need encouragement from the church and the means of grace to stand firm in the faith. I'll mention again prayer. Prayer is another way uh, in which another primary means for standing firm in the faith. In fact, Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It's the chief exercise. He calls prayer the chief exercise by which we daily receive God's benefits. Calvin goes on to say that by prayer, we dig up the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. Paul says in the spiritual warfare chapter in Ephesians 6 that we should be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that they would not fall into temptation. Prayer is the daily exercise that we need to stay strong in the faith. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we stand firm in the faith, the devil flees. This is our strategy. We need God's promises, the church, and prayer to stand firm in the faith and resist the devil. That is the strategy that Peter gives to us. Lastly, Peter assures us of our hope. Look at verse 10. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered a little while, he says, after you have suffered a little while, Peter reminds us that suffering is limited. Suffering is limited. It only lasts a little while in comparison to eternal glory. In chapter 1, he pointed out that we have a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, don't lose perspective here. Satan wants you to believe the lie that giving up and experiencing temporary relief from the trial will result in glory. It doesn't. It doesn't. It results in greater pain and misery. It results in eternal sorrow and suffering. Peter says, hang on, cling to the hope of eternal glory in Christ. It will turn out to have only been a little while in comparison to eternity. Peter assures us with the hope that the God of all grace, who has called us to this eternal glory, is going to set everything right. He himself will do it. He will restore you. He will confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Cling to these promises. Cling to this hope. This is the grace of God that we are to stand firm in. Christ is the firm foundation. If you stand firm in his grace and persevere, he will establish you. You won't be put to shame. Your story won't end in hardship and sorrow. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Peter reminds us who is in charge here. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, Jesus has won the victory. He has won the victory. Satan is going to lose. He has already lost. As Martin Luther put it in his great hymn, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Scripture is very clear about Satan's destiny. Matthew 25 says, there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20 says that Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His destiny is clear, but Satan, like sin, is irrational. Okay? He may not be a fool, but he is irrational like sin. He knows the plan of God, and yet he continues to attempt to thwart it. Revelation 12 says, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil thought he could devour Christ in Bethlehem through the envy and rage of Herod. He thought he could outwit our Lord in the wilderness. He thought that he had at last triumphed at the cross. In Revelation 12, we see an apocalyptic scene of the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Verse 4 says, 
the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. He couldn't devour the child. He seeks to devour the church. He wants you to take part in his irrational thinking and to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. Again, Satan hates you. And he has a horrible plan for your life. He hates you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake your faith until you fall away. But remember Peter's words. God cares for you. God cares for you. Satan hates you, but Jesus cares for you. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we who are united to him have been cleared of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Satan's accusations no longer stand. They don't hold up in God's courtroom any longer. Luther said, when the devil throws our sins up to us, and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall also be. Jesus is our living hope. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christ has freed us from the power of darkness and Satan. Christ has the dominion forever and ever. Jesus, our Samson, has torn the lion to pieces. Jesus, our David, has slain this Goliath. The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered the great dragon. He has crushed his head with his mighty heel. Satan is roaring because he knows he is lost. He is desperately attempting to attack Christ's bride. Do not be afraid. Do not listen to his lies. Keep clinging to Christ and his promises. Stand firm in the faith. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.